Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can someone just give me a mic check, please? Uh, make sure that we can, everyone can hear me. Can everyone hear me okay? So welcome to uh, what will be the second of our two specials that we're doing before inshallah ta'ala we continue with our tafsir uh, We finished as you know the tafsir of Surah Al-Alaq and then last week we did uh, our first special which was on Sajdatul Tilawa right, The prostration of recitation and we went through to it in, in quite some detail, especially like uh, some of the fiqh stuff, but also in terms of where those sajdas come in the Qur'an and, and some of the differences that you find amongst the scholars as to what is a sajda and what isn't a sajda and how to uh, recognize the differences of opinion in those in that particular regard. I know that there was quite a few questions from last week, and I think, to be frank, this week there will be a good number of questions as well uh, concerning our topic uh, that's possible. And I will inshallah ta'ala try to get through as many of those questions as I can. But if for whatever reason I can't because of time and, and you know what have you, then inshallah uh, we will look at those questions again next week. So what I want to request uh, from you from the very beginning of today's lesson is that as you're sending me your questions in, inshallah also keep a note of them. So if I don't get around to your question, it's not one of the questions that I managed to answer, then what you can do inshallah is you just uh, keep it for next week and send it back to me again. Or maybe, inshallah ta'ala, I will try to um, uh, try to collect some of those questions throughout the week. But if you keep a tab on them as well, then next week we can discuss them. So I think with last week's uh, lesson, you know, it's slightly easier in the sense that it's something which perhaps you've come across before, perhaps you've studied uh, from a fiqh point of view, because it's a fairly common topic that you would dis- that you would study if you were doing fiqh. It's something which you're probably going to come across in one form or another. The topic that we're going to speak about today, though, our second special uh, is actually something which I don't think you will have come across at least uh, to a great extent, right, or to a great level of detail. Um, and so that's uh, the topic that we're going to do, which is ilmul waqful ibtida, right, which is the science of uh, stopping and starting in the Quran, how and when to pause and stop in the Quran, and then how to start or restart your recitation of the Quran. And this is a science that is extremely important. It's a science that, you know, from like the very earliest of times, if you follow some of the narrations in the books of Quran and Qiraat and Ulum al-Quran, Quranic sciences, you would find that it goes back to works actually being written and authored on this topic, all the way back to the time of the Tabi'een, right, which is the students of the companions, radiallahu anhu That's extremely early. When you're looking at the time of the Tabi'een, you're looking at the very earliest type of codification of knowledge. And not all knowledge was written down or started to be compiled and gathered and codified that early on. Some of it actually starts later on, right? But it's certain sciences that you will find narrations of them. And from those narrations is in tafsir, right? From those sciences rather that you find early codification of is the science of tafsir in general. But for scholars then to take out from the sciences of the Quran and tafsir in general a specific science and to start authoring on it shows you its importance. And that's especially because, as we know, as the Muslim empire expands, you have people coming into to the fold of Islam, becoming Muslims, who are Arabs. It's not their uh, natural language or their mother tongue. It's not their, they're not Arabs. It's not their culture. It's not their understanding. They don't understand the literature and the poetry and so on, as perhaps the Quraysh did or the 
people of the Ansar of Medina and so on. Those are Arab Arabs, right? They're people who have who are Arabs for for generations. And so it's different than now when you're going to Persia, to Byzantine Rome, to Northern Africa, the Muslim Empire is expanding. And we know that even in the time of the companions, even in the latter period of the Khulafa, they are sending out en masse a great number of companions and ulama and qurra to go to those different distant lands of the Muslim Empire, the frontier lands, as we call them. And they would go there to teach people the Quran and how to understand and read the Quran and so on, because that's extremely important. This is a science that falls very much within that. Because where you start and stop in the recitation of the Quran has a great impact on the meaning. Because as, you know, if you can imagine someone who's not very well versed in the Quran, doesn't understand what you're reading, and they're just basically going off listening. What you're reading, that's all they're hearing. Without really knowing the context of the starting and the stopping, or this, they're relying very much on you. And that's why even in English when we read, you know, there's commas, there's pauses, there's full stops, there's question marks, there's exclamation marks. All of that punctuation is there so that when it's written or when it's read or when it's being heard, it's something which makes more sense. The meaning remains intact. That clearly is also something therefore when it comes to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when it comes to the Quran. So this is an extremely important topic and it's unfortunate that it's one of those sciences that in our time now has become slightly, uh, you know, slightly neglected. Uh, people are really aware that there's this science that exists or if someone mentions it, it's mentioned in passing. It's not really something which, which, which a great deal of focus is upon. Even though it is, you know, perhaps today, if not discussed as a science in and of itself independently, even though it has the right to be studied as such, it is most commonly probably going to be studied in the uh, general learning of tajweed, right, and the recitation of the Qur'an. And, and you will find that the scholars of Qur'an and, and even the scholars who wrote in tajweed uh, would often write in their books of Tajweed, they would write something to do with Waqf and Ibtida as well, because it has a great connection to this. And also because in order for you to do this correctly, it is one of those sciences that requires a certain knowledge of Tafsir, right? Because how else do you know when and where to stop? Certain knowledge of Tafsir. It requires from you a certain knowledge, for example, of Arabic grammar and Arabic language. It requires from you a certain uh, knowledge of of different sciences of the Quran as well, qiraat and so on, so that you can bring them all together and ensure that you start and stop in the right place. That obviously now shows you, you know, there's a couple of points to make here at the very beginning in this introduction before we go actually into the topic. Number one, that there will be a difference of opinion. So where and where you stop in terms of in the middle of verses especially, so not the end of the verses, but even sometimes the ending of the verses, but generally speaking in the middle of the verses, where you find today in the Mus'haf those small little signs that they have, those small little letters that they, that they have put down as almost punctuation, where it tells you do stop here or don't stop here, or it's okay to stop here, or it's better that you don't stop here, or better that you do stop here. All of those different signs that we have, uh, what we call the alamatul waqf in the Qur'an, those show you or those and then the difference is therefore that you have then in some of the different prints of the mushaf that you have shows you that this is an issue of which they had so the prophet sallallahu never had that that because the quran wasn't compiled in his time in that way and so the prophet never had those types of alamatul waqf in the way that he taught the companions but the companions understood it by virtue of their knowledge by virtue of the understanding of tafsir by virtue of the command of the Arabic language but it's not something which the Prophet writes down or dictates you won't find a hadith 
or anything in the Sunnah concerning this. So where does that come from? Then it is ijtihad from amongst the scholars, and that's why you find a difference of opinion. But that's for those people who are specialists in this, who are, have the ability to make ijtihad, who have the prerequisite knowledge of therefore coming to the Quran and understanding that perhaps I can stop here, or perhaps I don't stop here for whatever reason. That's a different level. What the second point is, therefore, that what the scholars have done is that they have given us those stops, right? The alamatul waqf. And the alamatul waqf in the Quran have been placed by experts, by, by specialists, by people who have dedicated their lives to the Quran and tafsir and, and its recitation and its reading. And they've studied the books and the, and the, uh, and the works of al-waqf and ibtida. And they've put them there to make your life easier. My general advice to you know the average person, I say this at the beginning just so that it's very clear because I think it will preempt a lot of questions at the end as to, but I don't understand Arabic, so what do I do, right? Or the question of, you know, I don't really know much tafsir, so what do I do? Or, you know, all of those questions that we may have, which are genuine questions, and they are very fair questions to have, what the scholars have done, because remember, even amongst Arabs now, it's not as easy as it used to be. It's not as straightforward as you may think. Just because someone knows Arabic doesn't mean that they understand waqf al-ibtida. Doesn't mean that they can start and stop as and when they please just because they know Arabic. There are plenty of Arabs who actually make mistakes in their waqf al-ibtida, who recite the Quran incorrectly because they don't have knowledge just by virtue of speaking colloquial Arabic doesn't give you the command that you need because tafsir is different. Waqf al-ibtida is different. Arabic nahu and grammar is different just to being able to converse in the Arabic language. So, what the scholars have done is that they have given us those alamatul waqf to make my life easier, to make your life easier. My students in Quran, I generally advise them with the same thing. Stick to what you find in the Mus'haf. When you open the Quran, you have people like Sheikh Ali al-Hudayfi, the Imam of Masjid al-Nabawi. You have people like Sheikh Muhammad Tamim al-Zu'bi. You have like amazing like scholars of, of Quran and Qira'at. These are you know, world experts gathered from across the world, from Egypt, from, from Mauritania, from Saudi Arabia, from across the Muslim world, and they've been gathered to come together and to decide those types of issues, study them together, and arrive at some decision. The fact that you have that panel of preeminent scholars who are world-renowned and recognized, why then am I going to come to you and actually say to you, if you reach that level yourself, as you find many of the Qurra do, especially the more knowledgeable from amongst them, who are judges and ulama themselves and so on, you will hear when they recite sometimes, they stop in the middle of a verse where there's no stop, there's no, there's no sign to stop there, and then they will continue. That's because perhaps that sheikh has that prerequisite knowledge, he studied enough, he feels comfortable enough to do that. The problem is then when I come as a student or as the layperson and try to implement that, it is going to be very difficult. And you can often fall into mistakes. I remember myself when I was doing, and I was a student in, in the Islamic University of Medina at the time, but when I was doing my ijazah with our Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Sayyid Lashin Abu Farh, rahimahullah ta'ala, and he was giving me his ijazah in the recitation of Hafs, he would tell me that I can only stop where it's said in the Mus'haf that I can stop, even though the stop would have been okay even though perhaps it's permissible and allowed, and the Sheikh himself would have allowed it. But just to train me as a student, that I should recognize those places to stop, because therefore, you know, you've relied on someone more knowledgeable, who's more of a specialist in the area, more of an expert, and that is always something which should be, uh, you know, which should be acknowledged and looked upon. It's not something to look down upon or frown upon, that you're reverting back to someone who has more knowledge and more expertise than you in a particular field. Therefore, to follow those you know, particular ones in the Qur'an, especially in the Mus'haf of Medina, that's the one that I'm primarily speaking about, the one that's printed in the uh, Qur'an complex in Medina in Saudi Arabia, 
the one that you know many people have access to across the world now online and offline that's the one that I'm predominantly referring to and that's the one that I'm going to be referring to as well when it comes to these types of issues of the alamatul waqf right so one of the questions that I often get is yeah Sheikh you mentioned this but in the Pakistani script that I have or in the North African script that I have they have an alamatul waqf which which is different they give me a different letter what does that mean and the answer would be that actually if you go back to that same Quran at the end they will give you an index of what that means you can actually look that up yourself I'm not very familiar with those different scripts so therefore it's not going to be something which I'm going to be delving into in a great deal the point is though of this that I want to uh, want to kind of impress on all of us is the importance of sticking to those places right where as much as you can to the best of your ability and we're going to speak now in more depth about waqf and ibtida and so on but the point is here that generally speaking you stick to that at the end of a verse pause and take a breath right it is frustrating when you hear someone come to the end of a verse where there's a stop and you can actually stop and pause correctly and it's a place where you can pause take a breath and then continue but the reciter continues without pausing and then two words into the next verse they have to take a breath anyway because they've run out of breath they have to stop why why not just stop two words before right or why stop where there's a stop in the quran they've shown you here is a place where you can actually stop and pause you ignore that and you carry on and you stop three words later anyway why not stick to what they're telling you and giving you in terms of expert advice and so on and so that's very important in terms of quran reading and again it's one of those things that have become neglected in our own recitation of the Qur'an, in our teaching to others of the Qur'an, even amongst many Qur'an students, especially the younger ones who are going up and upcoming in their Qur'an memorization and recitation, it's not something which is focused on now. The teachers don't focus on it and the students therefore don't focus on it. But it is something extremely important because it is dangerous. It is dangerous to stop somewhere where you can actually so butcher the meaning, and I mean literally butcher, that you change the whole context of the verse, the meaning of the verse, you can actually ascribe to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala something which is not allowed in Islam. It would be haram to ascribe such things in Islam and we'll give some examples. The point is that no one would do that intentionally, right? No one does that because they mean that they want to ascribe to Allah some form of shirk or some form of evil. It is a mistake, right? It's a very common mistake, but it's a mistake that can be avoided. And where you can avoid the mistake just by being slightly more diligent in your reading, concentrating a bit more, getting into a better routine, focusing a bit more on what it is that you're reading and how you're reading it, then it's something which should be done because of the dangers of what you can potentially fall into. So, let us go into the science of al-waqf and ibtida. What is the science of al-waqf and ibtida? Very briefly, and this is you know the purpose of these specials, as you know by now, is not to go into the depths and the great details. And I appreciate that there are amongst you serious students of Quran and advanced students of Quranic sciences that would actually appreciate the minutiae and us going into the nitty gritty and the differences of opinion and the evidences and so on. I understand that there's amongst you those students, and inshallah, I hope that at some point we can do something like that, maybe on a different platform, right, where we can, we don't have to necessarily do it here, but we can do it in a slightly different way for our students on QP, and therefore whoever wants to come can come, and whoever thinks that actually that's too much for me, or it's not really the level that I'm looking for, they don't feel that kind of obligation or pressure to, uh, to attend either. However, generally these specials are to give you two things. Number one, uh, a, an introduction so that you are aware of what it is, uh, that we're speaking about these new sciences, these concepts, and number two, to make them as comprehensive as possible without going into the nitty gritty and the detail. I want to cover all of the different facets of what is the science without us going into depth concerning each and every single point, just like what we did last week when we spoke about 
sujud tirah and what we've done before as well because each one of these can in and of themselves become a series of lectures or a mini-series of lectures if we allow them to be so. So Raqfal Ibtida basically is the science of when to start and stop in the Qur'an and one of the things that you'll notice is when the scholars call this science or they name the science they start with the stopping before the starting Al-Waqfu wa Ibtida why do they start with stopping? Because it's counterintuitive, right? You would think that it's called the science of starting and stopping because you start reciting the Quran and then you pause. So why call it the science of pausing? No one starts with the pausing, you start with the starting. And that's because it is the pausing that will cause you issues generally. Because you start where you choose to start, right? You don't have a problem if you start with Surah Fatiha or you start at the beginning of a Surah or generally you start from the beginning of a story within the Surah or so on. This is assuming that you understand those types of issues. The, the issue, therefore, that is more predominant and the one that they focus most on in the science of Waqf and is where to stop, not where to start. That's what you will find. The emphasis and the detail is when and where to stop. And some of them have broken those issues down of where to stop the categories into a great amount of detail with many, many examples and the differences of opinion in each one of those examples. The restarting is easier in the sense that it's assumed that you would stop in a good place and therefore you're able to start from a good place, right? So what we're speaking about generally when it comes to waqf and is to choose a place to stop. That is a good place that you stop at and therefore you can start from reciting from there, meaning you don't necessarily have to go back. Now, there are two types generally of waqf and There's different ways that you can categorize waqf and We will speak about one of them, which is the categorization of the correct ways to stop and restart. But the general two categories of waqf and ibtida, or waqf anyway, uh, when it comes to stopping in the Qur'an, which is the first section of this uh, science, is that there are two types. One is ittirari and one is ikhtiyari. Ittirari means a forced stop. It's a necessity. Why is it a necessity? Because I've run out of breath. I can't continue. There's a long verse in the Qur'an, right? Or, you know, there's there's this there's, there's verse that like goes on for three or four, uh, lines and, and even the ulama haven't put anywhere right there's no stop here it's just a long verse and so now for me to get through that verse in a single breath is difficult some people may be able to do more some people less some people can maybe even do the whole thing in a single breath other people can't because they struggle people are different that is called waqf ittirari ittirari means I have to stop so now when it comes to me stopping what do I have to do I have to look for a place that's a good place to stop right and this is where it comes down to the categories of when and where to stop that kind of falls into that issue. But that's the first type of stopping. You stop because you have to. And that's okay, right? You stop because you have to stop. But the general rule in that is that you would find in the category of stopping what would be a decent place to stop, right? And that requires you also to plan ahead. So the meaning of ittirari means that you have to stop isn't that you just carry reciting until you physically cannot read anymore. You physically run out of breath, so you now you have to stop. Otherwise, you're, you're going to choke, right? You can't breathe anymore. That's not the meaning of ittirari. The meaning of ittirari is that you know you're about to finish, like your breath is about to run out, so choose a good place to stop before you get to that point. So, for example, someone says, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا إذا تداينتم بدين إلى أجل مسمى فاكتبوه وليكتب بينكم كاتب بالعدل ولا يأبى كاتب أن يكتب and now I've just stopped because I can't read anymore. Not because it's a good place to stop, I physically could not continue. That's not the meaning of ittirari. Yes, it means that you have to take a breath, but what should I have done? 
is I should have realized that actually I ain't going to do all of this verse in a single breath. I need to choose a place that is good to stop at. Now when I find that place to stop, I have to restart. Either I can restart from where I left off because the meaning was good and it's a good place to stop and I can continue and we'll go into that in terms of what that means practically. Or I have to go slightly back and restart from a place where the meaning will remain intact. Will the meaning remain intact? And just to give you a very simple example, right? a very simple that no one really struggles with, but just so that you understand the point. When you say, for example, the first verse of Surah Fatiha, Alhamdulillahi Rabb, right? Rabb isn't really a place that you should have stopped at. But if you were going to stop there, because just say, for example, for the sake of argument, you run out of breath, you couldn't continue anymore. You can't just start off and say, Al-Alameen. Right? You can't just do that because you've broken up the meaning. So you have to go back. So you say, Rabbil Alameen, at the very least. You join between what is the Lord, the name of Allah Azza wa Jal, Rabb, and what is the Lord of in this verse, Al-Alameen. Right? Or you start from the beginning again if that is something which you're able to do. That is the first type of waqf, Ittirari. And the scholars don't really go into a great deal of depth in that because it is understood that that's something which is done out of need and necessity. And as we know, like, you know, people differ in terms of how long they can hold their breath. You know, you hear, mashallah, some of the old reciters like Shaykh Abdul Basit and Shaykh Minshawi and others, you know, they can read slowly and they have a very deep and long breath, right? And they can carry on reading. Other people struggle, right? They can only read a few verses or often a few, a few words of a verse before they start to struggle and run out of breath. This differs from person to person and so it depends on what you're able to do. The second type of waqf is ikhtiyari. That means by choice. You choose to stop there. Now you choose to stop there because you need to take a pause anyway. It's something where you have to pause anyway. At some point you're going to pause. You think this is a good place for me to pause so you do so. Right? And there are different types of that type of pause which is ikhtiyari and that's the one that they go into detail concerning. But before we go into that, let me speak about the background of this science and in, in particular uh, what it's based on. Right? Where does this come from? Because we said the Prophet didn't give us a hadith, it's not mentioned in the sunnah that the Prophet said on this verse you stop here or you can stop here and don't stop there. You don't find those types of a hadith. But as with everything in our religion, we understand that when the Prophet, and especially when it comes to the recitation of the Qur'an, or Qur'an in general, we understand that the Prophet ﷺ taught his companions everything in terms of Qur'an. So the Prophet never sat down and taught, 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 taught the Jweed. He didn't sit down and say, today we're going to learn the rules of Mad, or the rules of Noon, Sakin, and Tanween, or we're going to do, for example, the Huruf uh, al-Isti'la. You don't find a single hadith like that. But how do we know that it's something which the Prophet taught? How do we know that that's how the Qur'an was recited? Because we have a chain of narration that takes us back to the companions, Ali, Ibn Mas'ud, Zayd ibn Thabit, Ubay ibn Ka'b, radiyallahu anhu, Abu Darda, and others from amongst them. And they say that we heard the Prophet read like this. And obviously the Prophet is taught to read the Qur'an by who? By Jibreel, alayhi salatu wassalam. And so therefore, it's something which we understand inherently. That is how our religion gave us the Qur'an. Waqf wa nibtida is similar. Waqf and ibtida is something which we understand because that is how the Qur'an was given to those companions. And the scholars use a number of evidences to show this. Uh, some of them slightly more apparent and clear and direct and others maybe perhaps not, not so much. But from amongst them is the verse in Surah Al-Muzzammil وَرَتِّلِ And recite the Qur'an in a calm, relaxed, melodious way. Right, and tartil in the Quran doesn't mean to beautify your voice. Doesn't mean that you have to recite like you know one of the famous Qur'an. 
What it means is you recite calmly and methodically, giving the words and the letters its right of tajweed and so on. That's what it means in the general Arabic language. Ibn Abbas عنهما, for example said, make it clear, meaning your recitation, don't read in a very fast way. And the scholars say, and therefore in the meaning of that then, in this clear recitation, obviously is that you stop in a way and a manner that is correct, because otherwise the meaning doesn't become correct, doesn't become clear, if you're stopping and starting as and when you please and you wish. And Al-Hasan al-Basri Mujahid said something similar in terms of the meaning of this verse, meaning that it should be recited with clarity. Abu Amr al-Dani, and before him Ibn al-Nahas, two of the famous scholars of Qurra, of, of Qira'at and Qur'an and so on, both of them declared ijma' ijma' of the scholars of Islam on the importance of the topic of waqf and ibtida' so there is scholarly consensus that it's something which is a part of the recitation of the Qur'an that is a science from the sciences of, of Islam Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir he mentions the narration of Abu Huraira radiyallahu anhu that the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam this Qur'an was revealed in seven different ahruf, right? as we know the seven ahruf. So read from amongst them the ones that you wish, but make sure that you don't change or you don't end a verse of mercy with punishment or the verse of punishment with mercy, meaning don't switch things around. Make sure that you stop at the correct place. Why? Because often Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does he do after mentioning the verse of reward? He mentions punishment or vice versa. This hadith says, don't stop in an incorrect place where it's as if the one who should be getting punishment receives mercy and the one who should receive mercy receives punishment. Right? And some of the scholars use this as evidence of the Prophet saying, be careful of how you recite and when and where you stop. There is another narration of, uh, and there is a statement of Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma, and the scholars differ over its authenticity. Some of the scholars authenticated said it is a sound narration and others said that there is weakness in it. But it is said that Ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma said, uh, when he was speaking to his students, right, the people who came after him, he said that we lived for a long time, meaning before you, before you, meaning in the time of the Prophet And in our time, someone would be given iman before the Quran, meaning that they had a strong connection with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. They were people who who had fear of Allah Azzawajal and piety, and then they started to learn the Quran with that base and foundation of iman. And the and the surahs he says would be revealed to the Prophet so we would learn the halal, and we would learn the haram, and we would learn how to stop and pause in the Qur'an. But he says, now you people, and he's talking, by the way, to the tabi'in, right, to his students. We're still talking about the very early generations of Islam, and already he's saying that there's a problem in the way that people are reading the Qur'an, understanding the Qur'an. He said, but today you learn the Qur'an. And I've seen today that people learn the Qur'an before they have iman. So one of you will read from the beginning of the Qur'an, from Fatiha until the end. And he doesn't understand what Allah commanded him with, nor does he understand what Allah Azza prohibited him from, nor does he know how to stop and pause in his recitation of the Quran, and he reads it the way that he reads poetry, right? Or some type of prose or literature. Uh, also, from one of the early statements of the scholars that you find in this regard is the statement of Maymun ibn Mihran, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, from the scholars of the Tabi'een. He would say that today, when I read behind an Imam, when I pray behind an Imam, he says that my skin crawls because of how bad I feel when someone is reciting the Qur'an. In our time, he said, meaning obviously when he was in his time when the scholars were more and so on, in his generation, he says that one of us, when we would lead the prayer, 
would not stop the rak'ah. We wouldn't go into ruku' until the story would finish or until the context was complete or until the message was completed. Then we would go into ruku'. Whether that was long or short, he says, rahimahullah ta'ala. But he says, today I hear one of you read the verse, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ لَا تُفْسِدُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ And if you were to say to them, don't cause corruption upon the earth, قَالُوا إِنَّمَا نَحْنُ مُصْلِحُونَ They say that we only seek to do good. And then he goes into ruku'. And then in the next surah, he will stand up and carry on and say, Rather, they are the ones who cause corruption. Those two verses are clearly connected. Allah is saying, don't cause corruption. Or they claim, the hypocrites claim that they don't cause corruption. Allah says, but it is they who cause corruption. Right? Maymun bin Mihran ta'ala, is saying what would happen is this imam just makes ruku' there. He doesn't understand that there's a context that he hasn't finished, that Allah Azza wa is still speaking about the same issue and he goes into ruku'. That's something which he would dislike. And by the way, generally, as a general rule, as we know from the sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, if you look at the majority of the narrations that speak about how the Prophet will lead the salah and read his Quran, you find, generally speaking, and there are exceptions, but generally, like 95% or more, is that the Prophet ﷺ would read complete surahs. That's how he would lead. He would lead all of surah, read all of Surah Duha. He's reading all of Surah Baqarah. He's reading all of Surah Tur. He's reading all of Mursalat Urfa or Qaf or whatever surah he's reading. You don't find a, a, a narration of him وسلم, just reading selected verses or reading portion of a story or something. Even though it's allowed because there are narrations that show the Prophet did that, right? And it's, so, it's permissible, but it's not the general practice of the Sunnah. In Fajr, as we know, the companion said he would read from the long Mufassal in Maghrib, the short Mufassal in Isha, the middle Mufassal. And so he's doing this because the Prophet is showing that this is generally how it should be done. So this is a statement of Maymun ibn Mihran. Imam ibn al-Jazari, rahimahullah ta'ala, who's one of the preeminent scholars of Qiraat, as we know, and one of the muhaqiqeen of this particular science, he says that you can actually go back to the very earliest of generations amongst the Muslims and you can find statements of them. Speaking about the importance of waqf and ibtida. For example, he mentions Abu Ja'far, Yazid ibn al Qa'aqa, rahimahullah ta'ala, one of the ten Qurra, right? He's one of the ten Qurra, the Imam of Medina, and also Nafi', who's also one of the ten, and Abu Amr, who's also one of the ten, and Ya'qub, and Asim, ibn Abi Najud, whose recitation we read from Hafs. All of them, he says, and many others mention within their books, or you find narrations that were narrated from them, that speak about the importance of alongside recitation, as you're learning Tajweed, as you're learning Qiraat, as you're learning whatever else, you must also learn Al-Waqf Wal-Ibtida. Al-Waqf Wal-Ibtida. And he says, this is Ibn al-Jazari, he says, and our Imams and our Ulama, what they would do is when students would read to them, they would use their hands and their fingers and tell them when and where to stop. Tell them when and where to stop. And on a personal note, just to share with you something which I personally learned from one of my teachers in Quran, again the same Sheikh, Sheikh uh, Sayyid Lashin Abul Farhar, one of the scholars of Egypt who used to live and teach in Medina, and he was well known uh, amongst the scholars of Quran and Qiraat in Medina and Tajweed. And he has books on this uh, on this topic as well, including a, a explanation of the Jazariya, rahimahullah ta'ala, a man who was amazing in his humility and humbleness, but also in his mastery of the Quran. He would often have multiple students reading to them and rarely, if ever, would any of them make a mistake that he would miss. He had this amazing ability to multitask and he had very strong memory. Someone would be reading in the 10 Qira'at and one of the students reading in just one Qira'ah. And each one's reading from a different part of the Qur'an and he would be attuned to both of them. And he never, I never saw him with the Qur'an open once or the Mus'haf. On the odd occasion, he may say to the student, you check. And often the Sheikh would be right and the student would be 
incorrect. But the point is, one of the things that he would clearly do is he would make these isharat, these signals with his hand of where to stop. So in the middle of a verse, if he felt that this is the place that you should stop, it's a stop in the Quran that's already there, or perhaps he thought that the student was running out of breath, he would often do this. Right? And that means basically pause. Right? And, and you learn this stuff right? as you're reading, you're reading to the Shaykh for a year or so. After a while, you're going to pick up after the first couple of weeks that that's what he's saying. And he would do this because this is one of the, as Ibn Jazili is saying, ta'ala, one of the methods that the scholars of the Qur'an would have to show students this is a good place to stop. You can stop here. You can pause here. Take a breath here. That's something which they would do because as a student, if you're reading with a teacher and he's doing this a number of times, especially as you're learning and memorizing, perhaps not so much more afterwards if you're just going to read once, but as you're learning and memorizing, then it is something which you learn and you benefit from. And Imam al-Sha'bi, as we know, uh, one of the famous scholars of the Tabi'in from the most illustrious from amongst them, from the Imams of the Tabi'in, he would say, if one of you is going to read in Surah Rahman, the verse, Kullu man alayha fan, everything upon it will be destroyed, then don't let him stop there. Meaning he can pause, but don't finish your recitation until you've read after it. Except for the face of your Lord, full of nobility and honor. And you have many statements from amongst them, from amongst the early scholars. Abu Hatim al-Sijistani, who's from the uh, teachers of the likes of Imam al-Nasai and Abu Dawood and others, he said, he, used to, he said in one of his statements that the one who doesn't know the science of waqf and ibtida' doesn't know the Qur'an. And Ibn al-Anbari, rahimahullah, was also from the earliest scholars who wrote on this topic of waqf and ibtida'. He said that from the complete understanding of the Qur'an and its mastery is to understand al-waqf and ibtida', how to pause and how to restart in your recitation of the Qur'an. In fact, it is said uh, that the earliest person to write concerning this was from the tabi'in, a scholar by the name of Shayba ibn al-Nassah, was the free slave of Umm Salama radiyallahu anha, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It is said that Shayba came to Umm Salama and he was a young boy and Umm Salama wiped over his head and she made dua for him, right? Which is something which you should do as an elder or someone who's, for example, a person of knowledge if you're one in your family or in your community when you have a young child. It is a good thing to make dua for the youngsters. Anyway, she made dua for him. He became a great scholar. It is said that he was one of the first to write. He died in the year 130 of the Hijrah. Ibn al-Jazali said he was the first to write concerning this, but this book is lost. And also from amongst that generation or that era, Abdullah ibn Amir al-Yahsubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he has a book called Maqtu' al-Qur'an wa Mawsurah, but it is also lost. And from the seven, or from the Qurra, the famous Qurra of the Qira'at, it is said that a good number of them authored works on this particular topic, which is rare because they didn't even author works on their own Qira'at. We take that from the narrations of their students. But because of the importance of this, it is said, that they authored, such as Abu Amr, uh, al-Basri, and Hamza, al-Kufi, and nafi from Medina, and al-Kisai, also from the reciters of Kufa. All of them wrote this. And then you have others, for example, who came much later on, but they wrote it in the books of Qira'at. So it became a part of Qira'at. So if, for example, al-Sakhawi, Ibn al-Jazari, amongst others in their books on Qira'at, they also write about this. Today, though, you will find it also in the books of Ulum al-Quran. So the sciences of Quran, so Zarkashi mentions it in her Burhan, uh, Imam al-Suyuti, rahimahullah, in his book Al-Itqan, they will mention one of the uh, sciences of the Quran because their books are on the sciences of the Quran. That one of those sciences is Al-Waqf and Al-Ibtida. The earliest books that we have, though, because a lot of those early books that I mentioned to you are lost to time. They didn't survive over the ages. The earliest book that we have is from a scholar by the name of Ibn al-Anbari. 
this quote that I just mentioned to you. Uh, he died in the year 328 of the Hijrah. His book is Idahul Waqf Wal Ibtida' Fi Kitab Azza wa Jal. And that is the earliest book that survives to our time. And then after him, uh, not too long after him, 10 years he, uh, after he died 338, you have Ibn Nahas. Uh, Muhammad Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Ismail was a book called Al Qat'u Wal Itinaf. And a third book by Abu Amr al Dani, who's one of the famous scholars of, of Qiraat. He has a book and he died in the year 444 Hijri. And as we said before, Imam Shatimi, his Shatimiya is a uh, poetic version of uh, one of the books in Qiraat of Abu Amr al Dani. Uh, his book in Waqf al Ibtida is called Al Muqtafa Al Muqtafa Fi Al Waqf Wal Ibtida Fi Kitab Azza wa Jal. And also Abu Yahya Zakari al Ansari who comes after him also, he has a book as well. The point is that this is something which the scholars paid a great deal of attention to, but it's something which over time, as I said before, has become lost. So, let us go back into Al-Waqf and Ibtida, and in particular Al-Waqf. So as we said before, you have the Waqf which is Ittirari, you have to pause because it's just something which you have to do, your breath is running out. That's something which is a smaller issue, in the sense that it's easy on one hand, you have to do, you don't have a choice. But at the same time, where and where to stop also comes into ikhtiyari, where you choose to stop, right? And basically you're, you know, except on the odd occasion where, for example, you, you know, have one of those rare episodes where, for example, you just can't continue reading or you hiccup or you sneeze or something happens which just cuts off your recitation or you just take a gulp or something happens which stops you from being able to continue. Usually, even if you're going to run out of breath, you are able to choose where to stop. And that is called al-waqfu al-ikhtiyari. When it comes to pausing, there are three different terms that you will find in the books of Waqf and Ibtida, and I just want to mention them because it's important to understand the importance of the difference between them. There is the word Al-Qat, which means to cut off, Waqf, which means to pause or to stop, and a sect, which means to take a pause. Right? What is the difference between the three? Al-Qat, when it's mentioned in the books of Waqf and Ibtida, means to stop, to completely finish your recitation and to move on to something else. So for example, today I'm going to read half a juz from the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah. When I finish half a juz, I am now going to make qat, meaning I'm going to stop my recitation, I'm going to go and go to work, I'm going to go to school, I'm, I don't know, pick up, do something else, whatever it is, meaning I have finished my recitation of the Qur'an. That is called Al-Qat. And even when it comes to Al-Qat, right, where generally you should finish is at a place where the meaning is correct. You finish at the end of a story, maybe you're reading the story of Musa you finish it. Or you're coming towards the end of the surah, finish the surah. Or you're coming to the end of verses, for example, speaking about marriage or hajj or whatever it may be, you come to the end of those verses and that's where you pause. Now a word to the wise that the general rubats in the Qur'an, the halfway mark, the quarter marks in the Qur'an, the eighth marks in the Qur'an, don't necessarily mean that it is a good place to stop your recitation. Right? Obviously all of them are at the end of verses, so the pausing in the middle of recitation is fine, you can take a breath there. But in terms of stopping, now I'm going to go into Ruku' if I'm leading prayer, or I'm going to stop now, that's the end of the story. No, not necessarily so. Right? And one of the most uh, clearest examples of that is at the end of the fourth juz, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, and in the beginning of the fifth juz, when Allah just speaks about the uh, relations that you're not allowed to marry. حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمْ أُمَّهَاتُكُمْ and the verse on the context lost before that will attend you Those verses tell you who you can't stop with. Finishes at the end of the fourth verse. It is a common mistake, and our teachers, even when we would read Quran to them, wouldn't allow us to stop here. Not lead the prayer, forget lead the prayer, even in reading to them for ijaz and so on, wouldn't allow us to stop here. 
but they would tell us to read the first verse of the fifth juz. Because Allah continues and He says, nisa, And likewise, the women who are already married, it's not allowed for you to marry them again. They already have husbands. Those people, are, if you stop the verse here and then you restart, nisa, what, what, what is the ruling for muhsanat min nisa Where does it come from? It comes from hurrimat alikum in the, in the previous verse. Allah has made haram for you. If you cut them off from each other, then well, muhsanat, you've left it without any meaning. You don't understand what the and is referring to and the, and the women that are married, what about them? You don't know because you've missed out the meaning. That's a very simple example. Al-Qat generally though means that you come to the end of your recitation, the end of the rak'ah, you're going to go into ruku' and so on. Right? And as we saw from the statement of some of the scholars of before, it is important to choose a place. And if you don't know or you don't understand, listen to someone who, for example, leads prayers, one of the imams of the harams in Mecca and Medina, see what they do if you want to read those verses of the Qur'an, or just read from the surahs, the short surahs that you can finish it, uh, it, them entirely and completely in the recitation that you're doing. The, that's the first word, qat. Al-waqf means to pause. Right? So in the middle of the recitation now, I'm just going to take a pause. I am going to stop, and I'm going to take a pause, and I'm going to take a breather, and that's what I'm going to do. And that is the most common one. Right? So qat means that I stop the recitation, I'm going to go and do something else. Uh, by the way, if you have any questions, feel free to like add. So in, as we're going through this, it may be easier to take some of your questions as we're going through, rather than we have uh, everything at the end. Um, so if there's anything that's unclear, anything that doesn't make sense, uh, let me know inshallah and I'll try to clarify as we as we go along. Al-Waqf therefore is pause. So the second term, Qat means to stop your recitation, move on to something completely different. Al-Waqf means what? It means that I'm pausing. I'm pausing in my recitation. I'm going to take a pause. Whether it's at the end of the verse or in the middle of the verse, I am going to pause because I need to stop at this place. Now sometimes that can be done because you're running out of breath as we said, that's called Waqf Ittirari. But oftentimes it is ikhtiyari, it is by choice. I choose to stop here, I want to pause here, and then I'm going to continue, right? That is often the case. And that's the one that you will find this type, waqf ikhtiyari, is the one that the scholars have, you know, the most detail concerning, and therefore the one that you would find most differences of opinion concerning as well, if you were to go into it in that regard. The third um, meaning is a sect, right? A sect. Now, what does the word a sect mean? A sect means, right, a sect means it is something which is a pause. And what sect means in the Quran when we speak about it is you're taking a stop. Right? And the scholars generally say that you don't even take a breath. It is a simple pause where you hold your breath and then you continue to recite. And that is done in two ways. One, it is done in terms of certain verses and words that you find in the Quran according to some of the qiraat. And one is done in terms of a word within itself, within the word itself. So one is at the end of the word and one is done within the word itself. So, for example, um, if we were to say, for example, in, in, in terms of the words or in terms of the verses, you know, the famous examples that you will find is the one in Surah Mutaffifin, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kalla bal rana ala ma kanu yaksibun. Right, that pause there is called sect. So that is also a type of you know, it comes generally under the, the scope of waqf and ibtida, but it's not the one that these scholars would mainly focus on. Sect has its own uh, ruling in tajweed, right? That's what you'll find it in on the books of qira'at. That's where they speak about this in more detail. But just so that we understand the distinction between these three terms, because you will come across them. So a sect is that I'm going to pause. Pause without taking a breath. So qat means 
I stop my recitation completely, I'm going to move on to something else. Waqf means that I'm going to pause or stop, meaning take a breath, take a new breath or stop, take a breath, and then continue with a new breath. Sekht means that I'm going to pause without taking a breath. Right, even though you may think, or the listener may think, or someone who's not attuned to the rules of Tajweed may think that that person stopped and paused to breathe, actually they didn't. What they did is they stopped to pause simply with holding their breath. And if you take a breath, it is incorrect according to many of the scholars of Qiraat and so on. So you can't say, No. It is a pause that you make. Right? Similar to it is the verse in Surah Al-Qiyamah. Right, and this is obviously in the Qira'ah of Hafs. Other Qira'at, they don't have this sect. So you can read, for example, in the Qira'ah of, of uh, uh, um, Susi and others, you read, You don't pause there. So it depends on Qira'at as well. And that's why it's important, because sometimes people call out a mistake on another person, and even though he's reciting in a different Qira'ah, and you say, look, there's a pause there, and what you did is haram and wrong and whatever, and they don't understand that actually that ruling is something particular to a certain Qira'ah. That's generally in the Quran, right? You find that in the Quran in, in a number of places. It's called sect, right? And often in the Quran, in the Mus'haf, you will find uh, by those verses in the margin, you find a small little sign there saying a sect, right? A sect, which basically means this type of pause. The pause within an actual word, in one word itself, is something which you find in the recitation of, of Hamza, right? And the recitation of, of Khalaf, Al-Ashir. They actually have pauses within the word. So, for example, when they say shay and right, you find that in 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 in, um, in in the recitation of uh, of uh, of Hamza. So, for example, when he says Inna al-ladina kafaru sawa'un alayhum a'antharutahum am lam tundirum. What he's doing there in those pauses? That's a particular pause at the end of the word. Sometimes in the word itself, like the word shay a. Right, he pauses, shay'an, shay'in, shay'un, and so on. So those are different types of things, and they are called sect. Okay, let me take a couple of these uh, questions before we uh, before we continue. Actually, let me just finish as you're sending in your questions. Uh, I don't think we will be able to finish, actually, the whole of this for this week. So this uh, particular special, even though I, I wanted to try my best to make it into a single one, but there's so much to go into, inshallah, that I think it's probably going to have to become a dual lesson. So those are the three terms that we have to understand. You find the word qat, you find the word waqf, and you find the word sect. What, which is the one that we're primarily dealing with, the one that we're focused on here in this particular science of waqf and ibtida? It is the word waqf, and that's why the science is named after this. So don't become confused between these different terms as and when you come across them or you read them. Now when it comes to waqf and ibtida, there's... Um, two things that it can do, right? One of the reasons why the scholars paid so much attention to it is because of two reasons. Number one is because it can inadvertently change the meaning to something which is incorrect, right? And something which is improper. And we will give examples of this as well. And sometimes it can enhance the meaning. It can enhance the meaning to actually change or add another tafsir to it or to add another meaning to it. And both of them, 
are extremely important. One, because obviously it is dangerous. So it is important because you have to be aware of it. You don't want to read the Quran incorrectly. You don't want stuff in a place that butchers the meaning, changes the meaning, attributes to Allah something that shouldn't be attributed to Allah, attributes to, to the people. Those are That's a problem in and of itself, right? And changes, for example, the rulings of the Quran, right? In terms of the fiqh rulings, the rulings of Islam. You change it because of the way that you recited the verse, right? That's a problem in and of itself. And so that's something which we have to be aware of as well. And we'll give examples of this, inshallah ta'ala, uh, probably most likely now next week when we speak about this in, in slightly more detail. We'll break down those categories of, of when and where to stop. But at the same time, it can also enhance the meaning. And that is also important from a tafsir point of view. Because when you stop somewhere, depending on how you then restart, it can add a meaning to it, right? And I want to give you a couple of examples of this one because the one of where not to stop and what not to do, that's what we're going to focus on next week in detail. That's the one that the scholars really focus on because that's what you want to stay away from. The other one of enhancing the meaning, wherever you stop, both meanings are correct. Both of them, inshallah, are acceptable. They're correct meanings. And so therefore, it's something which is okay, right? And so either way, you're kind of safe. But the one that they want to focus on is the one that can get you into trouble, the one that can lead you to do something which is haram, the one that will change the meanings of the Qur'an inadvertently, right? Inadvertently, it changes the meaning of the Qur'an. And so that's the one that we have to be more diligent about and more careful regarding. But the second one, where it enhances the meaning, I want to give you a couple of examples of this, uh, and then inshallah ta'ala will take your questions. The first of them is the famous example in the beginning of Surah Ali Imran. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the verses of the Quran that are clear, ayat, uh, muhkamat, and other verses which are which are mutashabihat, which are unclear. And then Allah says that the ones who have a disease in their heart, they follow the fitna and they follow their desires and they want to misinterpret the verses of the Quran. And then Allah says, And no one knows its true meaning except the except for Allah. وَالرَّاسِخُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ And the people who are firmly grounded in their knowledge. يَقُولُونَ آمَنَّا بِهِ كُلٌّ مِنْ عِنْدِ رَبِّنَا They say that we believe in it. All of it is from our Lord. The question here now is where do we stop? When Allah says that all of this knowledge, no one knows it except Allah and those firmly grounded in knowledge. Is the meaning that no one knows it except Allah and we pause? And then we say, and as for the people who are firmly grounded in knowledge, they say that all of it is from our Lord, meaning that they submit to it and say, we believe in it all. Or do we say that no one knows its knowledge except Allah and those who are extremely firm and grounded in their knowledge? And then we pause. So there's two different pauses, and depending on which one you pause in, you change the meaning. You give it a different tafsir. One meaning is that only Allah knows, that's knowledge that he's kept to himself, subhanahu wa ta'ala. As for the people of knowledge, even those who really know their stuff, there are certain verses of the Qur'an that they don't really understand. That's a knowledge that Allah Azza has kept. They say, we accept what Allah has given to us and we accept the knowledge that we have and we submit and we don't go any further. The second tafsir, depending on how you stop, if you pause later, is you say that actually, no, Allah knows, as do the people of knowledge that Allah has given to them, the knowledge of that particular issue. They know as well. And then everyone says that we believe in Allah, it is all from our Lord. That is a difference of opinion, right? And that's why you find, for example, that the first stopping where you say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only knows this and the people of the knowledge, they say that we submit to our Lord, that's reported as being the position of Ubay ibn Ka'b, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Aisha, even in narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas, uh, and many of the scholars of the Salaf, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Hassan, Urwa, Qatada, Dahak, Imam Malik, and then from the famous scholars of 
تفسير البغوي أنا الرازي أنا أبو حيان أنا السيوطي أنا الشوكاني أنا لالوسي all of them chose this particular place to stop that this, this is more correct and other scholars said no actually the meaning is correct because we have that statement of Ibn Abbas عنهم, and this is the second Ibn Abbas is reported from him both opinions he said that I am from amongst those people that Allah has given to them knowledge and actually if you look at this it is speaking about two different things there is knowledge that Allah only has meaning the detail of it so Allah says to us that Yawm Al-Qiyamah this will happen this is what is in the fire or Allah's attributes but the reality of that we do not know how Allah does certain things, those the particular the, the particular details of Allah's attributes, for example, that is knowledge that Allah has kept to Himself. But do we know about it? Yes, we understand when Allah says that He ascends above His throne, what the meaning of ascension is. When Allah says, for example, He has a hand, when Allah for example says that He speaks, those are terms that we understand. And so Ibn Abbas has both statements, and that is how you reconcile between them. But the second um, position that it is Allah, this knowledge belongs to Allah and to those people of knowledge who are firmly grounded. That is the statement also of Ibn Abbas and it is the opinion of a number of the scholars such as Muhammad ibn Ja'far ibn Zubair al-Rabi' ibn Anas ibn Qutaybah al-Akhfash and many. And it is the one that was chosen by, for example, al-Imam al-Nawawi and al-Khatib al-Baghdadi alayhim rahmatullah. That is to show you as an example of how it actually enhances tafsir. Now if you as a student of tafsir come to that, how would you know this? If you go to the books of tafsir, what they're speaking about now is an issue of waqf and ibtida. And if you don't understand this as a science, you won't really be able to appreciate what it is that they're speaking about, right? That's a, a famous example. Let me give you another example. Uh, and this is the example uh, of the verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and perhaps someone, I don't have the reference with me right now, uh, maybe someone can give it to us. وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ رُسُلًا إِلَىٰ قَوْمِهِمْ فَجَاءُوهُمْ بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ فَانْتَقَمْنَا مِنَ الَّذِينَ أَجْرَمُوا وَكَانَ حَقًّا عَلَيْنَا نَصْرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Allah says that we sent before you messengers to their people and they came with clear signs and we punished, we took revenge amongst those who were evil from amongst them and that is a right upon us that we help and assist the believers. Now the waqfir that we're speaking about is the general waqt that we will find even today in the Mus'haf if you open this verse is that you pause it فَانْتَقَمْنَا مِنَ الَّذِينَ أَجْرَمُوا and Allah says, we seek refuge, we punish those who did evil. And then you pause, there's a pause there. وَكَانَ حَقًّا عَلِيْنَا نَصْرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And it is a right upon us that we always assist the believers. Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions in his tafsir that it is said that Abu Bakr when he would read this verse would stop like this. He would say, فَانْتَقَمْنَا مِنَ الَّذِينَ أَجْرَمُوا وَكَانَ حَقًّا And then he would pause. And then he would say, and that changes the meaning. Allah now says, or in this particular, if you stop at this place, the meaning now becomes that we take revenge, we punish those who do evil, and that is always our right, meaning that will always be the reality, that would always be certain and the truth that Allah punishes those who do evil. And then Allah says separately, or you pause there, and then you say, and Allah helps the believers, right? Allah assists the believers. Look at how that change of the meaning, and it is beautiful. Both meanings are correct, but it enhances something. Allah definitely takes revenge amongst those who do evil, and Allah definitely helps those who are believers, right? And you will find this stop, uh, you know, in, in the reciters that actually uh, do this, and Sheikh Minshawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, in one of his recitations of this surah, uh, I don't know where it is, or I don't have the links that don't ask me, but I have heard him recite this with this particular waqf. And that shows you that these Qurra, you know, who understood uh, the importance of waqf and ibtida, 
and he may have even read Qurtubi and so on. This is tafsir, bringing it together with tajweed and qiraat and waqf al-imtida'at. This is how you become a scholar of the Qur'an, when you join and merge between all of these different various sciences, right? And Imam Qurtubi actually says that this goes all the way back to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, which shows you therefore the immense knowledge of even of those companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in. Therefore, this is like what I wanted to touch upon today, right? So this is where we kind of go and stop. Next week, inshallah ta'ala, we'll go into waqf iqtiyari, which is the, the main part of this. This was kind of all the introduction, which I was hoping wouldn't take so long, but uh, inshallah, I hope that there's benefit in it and it's open to your, your eyes to uh, this science. But inshallah, next week when we come, uh, we will speak about that in more detail in terms of the actual detail of when and where to stop and how to stop. And I will try to make it, inshallah, as easy to follow as possible. But let's now uh, look at some of your questions, inshallah, before we conclude for today. So, uh, Sumaira, the example that you gave between Juz 4 and 5, would it also be inappropriate to do a waqf here? No, it's not inappropriate to make a waqf there. To pause there and then to continue, take a breath. Uh, when you say at the end of the verse, uh, it's the end of a verse. So anywhere there's an end of a verse in the Quran, the general rule is that you can take a pause, you can stop, right? And we've mentioned already the difference of opinion, I think, concerning that. But if someone's in any doubt, we can repeat that again, inshallah, next week. And then you start, because the meaning remains intact. You understand that it's in that context, right? So remember, the context of the verse is not just in one verse in and of itself. It can be a number of verses. So for example, the story of a prophet that spans two or three pages, 20, 30, 40 verses, is all still one context, even though it spans over verses. doesn't mean that you have to read the whole thing in one breath. That's impossible. What it means is that you keep it together. So there's one waqf. Uh, one pause that you do in a verse to make sure that the meaning of that verse stays intact and then there's a pause that you would do to make sure that the overall meaning of the story or the ruling or whatever it is that Allah is mentioning that also stays intact and both of them are extremely important especially if for example you're going to read you know like lead someone in salah you know if someone's just reading to themselves and they know and they just choose to do it or they're teaching a child Quran right they memorize the Quran and they can only do one verse so they finish at this particular verse and then they're going to start the next one that child that's seven eight years old it's not such a major issue the bigger issue becomes when firstly you're unaware anyway that that's a problem I think that in itself is an issue but generally speaking the bigger problem is if for example you're leading salah you're reading taraweeh and we've I think probably all come across versions and examples of this if Shabi and others are saying this of their time in the time of the tabi'een then what about our time today and Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, Lubna asks on a wider point, particularly in Ramadan, when many of us are prone to reading a juz a day, many of them finish midway through a surah. As you gave the example at the end of juz 4, is it better to complete the surah in a single sitting or okay just to finish at the end of the juz? It is okay to finish where the meaning is correct. So if you're reading, for example, the story of a, a prophet, you don't even have to finish the whole story. It's like surah Yusuf is one long story, but there are places in surah Yusuf, it's okay. So for example, at the end of the story of the people of prison, right? Or towards the beginning when, when uh, Yusuf is placed in the wall and the end of that portion that speaks about him now, going to the Aziz of Misr. Or for example, so those are proper places to stop now, right? Uh, and, and the examples of this are many. So you can, you can choose to stop at a place that is still correct. And, and you find this even done in Salah, right? For example, that someone will read uh, a portion. What you won't do is cut off the story in the middle. Because now for you to come back and restart, and even though, like I said, a personal thing, if you're just reading yourself in Ramadan, you know, inshallah, it's not a big, as big an issue, but it's not good anyway. 
It's not good etiquette with the Quran. It's not good practice for you. And it's not something which you should get into the routine of doing if and when you can avoid it. And especially in Ramadan, you know, it's a good opportunity, therefore, to kind of read the translation and kind of or the tafsir, a basic tafsir, and mirror the two together. So, Mayra, which era was Maymun ibn Mihran alive, the one who felt his skin crawl at the end? He was in the time of the Tabi'een. So, we're talking from the scholars of the Tabi'een who are from the students of the companions, radiyallahu anhum. Shams is asking, where would should we decide to stop if we don't understand the Arabic meaning? So we spoke about this, right? Shams at the beginning, I said, that's why the scholars, what they do in the Quran, for example, the Medina one, is that they've given you signs. They've given you those signs, and we'll come across them, or we'll speak about them next week, just briefly. You know, where it says, for example, the lamb, alif, or for example, it says the meme, or the jim, or sili, and qili. Those are all signs that actually tell you when and where to stop, right? That's what they're trying to help you to do. Uh, Sumaira, for the layperson, sometimes different masahif differ in where it is disallowed to stop. What is best to actually do if you can't find a more appropriate place to crush your breath? So likewise, obviously, so in terms of the different masahif, right, the general ruling is that you stick to one mushaf, right? And the one, obviously, that I would recommend is Medina, not because it's, uh, you know, printed by my teachers or anything like that. It's because the panel that they gathered from across the world, experts, is something which I don't think that anyone else has been able to do in our time. And that's something which should never be uh, looked down upon or never be trivialized. There is therefore something which you should do. So when you stick to one, that will help you with the differences of opinion anyway, which are confusing. Um, but in terms of uh, where, where you need to stop to catch your breath, you do it to the best of your ability, right? Um, and it's difficult if you don't know Arabic to, to give you a general rule or a thumb you know, of where it is. But you generally try to stop, for example, on a, an announce. Or for example, if you say, Minal Mu'mineen, right? Or, um, or for example, if, if, uh, if, uh, yeah. So it, it depends. I mean, it's difficult to give uh, like a catch-all for for this because it's very dependent on the context and the meaning. But where you stop, then then you will try to go back and do your best. And that's why I think it's very important. Just as a uh, final point before we conclude today, um, the importance of learning basic Arabic. You don't have to become experts in Arabic. You don't have to be people who master the Arabic language. But to have a basic working understanding of the Arabic language will help you greatly. To understand the meaning of, for example, just vocab and the most common words of the Quran. Or, for example, when you're looking at, um, you know, you're looking at uh, just basic verbs in the Quran and tenses, it will help you greatly. So you don't have to be someone who's fluent or has a great command of the Arabic language. But even a basic understanding and working will allow you to help. Right? And one of the things that like Ibn Umar said in his statement, and that's why I mentioned it at the beginning, is the way that the scholars would read when he says we had Iman and Quran, what he means is that we didn't just recite the Quran, we learnt the Quran, we understood, we, we took from it, and with that understanding we were able to read the Quran correctly. What we've done now is we've become people who's often too often attached to the Quran, which is a good thing, and we read, but with very little understanding and very little learning or even desire to understand. This is a very good opportunity, as with everything that we do at QP, whether it's the tafsir, or whether it's the qiraat, or whether it's the readings of Jalalain, whatever it is that we're doing, the point of this is to help you to take those different pieces of the puzzle and make a jigsaw with them, right? That's what we want to do. And so it should inspire you to, okay, I need to read more translation. I need to read more tafsir. I need to learn a bit more Arabic. And yes, it is a time thing. It is something which will take time, but surely and slowly you will progress. And as you do, inshallah ta'ala, you will improve. Uh, Sumaira will take this as a final question before we conclude. We have found within the Madani print slight differences, but maybe a printing error. It's not a printing error. If you're talking about the Alamatul Waqf, where and when and where to stop, uh, what they've done is over time they've changed that. 
So in the old Mus'haf, if you remember from like the 90s and, and maybe even the early noughties, uh, they had a different system. Then they revised that system. And one of the reasons they revised that system is because there's a big difference of opinion. right? Because it's ijtihad. Right, so every scholar can come and actually make a point of, and you know, we will speak about this in more detail. There's, there's even a difference of opinion as to the categorization of this. You will find in the books of Ulum al Quran and so on. And so maybe I think what they did then is perhaps they revised some of that, which I think is a good thing anyway. But they also removed, I think, one or two of the symbols that they had from the Alamatul Waqf, uh, simply because I think they, they thought that maybe perhaps it was becoming too confusing. Right, it was becoming too confusing. So, for example, the one that they used to have that they no longer have, I think one of them was where you cannot stop, which was the Lam Alif, don't stop here. But what that would do then is people wouldn't stop there, but they would stop the, the next word or two. The meaning of don't stop here is basically you need to connect this meaning all the way to the end or to the next pause that comes. But what people would think is, I can't just stop here, I'll stop on the next two words. But actually it still caused the same problem. I think it was confusing people because they don't understand, they don't want people to study the Waqf and or anything like that. And so they removed some of them because it was actually causing people to make to do the very thing that they were trying to stop them to do, if that makes sense. Um, I think that's perhaps what you're referring to. In, that's why in the later edition and, and print that they have, they have changed some of that. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows, knows best. Okay, let us stop there, inshallah ta'ala. Our time is up. But inshallah, for next week, if I didn't get grant your questions, please remember them and post them back for me next week, inshallah. And next week, we'll go into the more detailed aspects of Al-Waqf wa Nibtida'. Jazakumullah khayran. Wa sallallahu ala nabiya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته